Happy New Year. Wow, I guess not for all of us. Happy New Year. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 12 this morning, Hebrews chapter 12. As I've been thinking and praying about uh, this new year and this message, you know, historically we've come out of the Advent series and we'll do uh, a study of the address for the first Sunday. I know today's not the first Sunday of the new year, but tomorrow will be. And so this morning is the study of the address. Like where are we and what is God calling us to this new year, 2018? Um, this is what I feel like God is laying on my heart. And this morning's message is entitled, How to Run the Race. I don't know if you're like me, but uh, how many would it say that 2017 has been a difficult year? And I looked back, I was journaling last night, I thought, man, this has been one of the hardest years of my life. Emotionally, spiritually, I, I know that true for, since I've been here at the church as I look at this year alone, uh, for us as a church, it's been a difficult year. All, all the losses that we've uh, had, all the pain that we've had, all the illnesses that we've had. It's just like, man, God, when, when is enough going to be enough? Is kind of what I was journaling in, uh, last night. And as I've been preparing this week for this message, uh, it, it's all about this idea. How are we running the race that God has set before us. And so I want to talk to us about that. I want to talk to us and give us words of encouragement this new year. How are we going to continue to run the race that God has set before us? And we'll see in this passage, he's the author and the perfecter of that race. He's called us to a race. And so what does that look like this morning? So let's turn in your Bible, just four points this morning uh, that we'll get to. Let me read the passage in its entirety. Then I'll go back and teach through the passage. It says this in Hebrews chapter 12, on verse 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3, consider him who endured for, from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. See what the author of uh, Hebrews is doing for us. He's setting up this picture this word picture for us and so the word picture is that here you and I are today and we're in the midst of this coliseum it says that and and we're getting ready for this race so we're in the middle of the coliseum and it says there's this great cloud of witnesses around us as we begin to ra run the race that is set before us I'll get to that part the set before us peace but so often we've got to look at and how the Bible breaks down the passage. And circle the word therefore. Whenever you see the word therefore in your Bible, you have to ask the question, what is it there for? And so what is the author saying to us? He says, therefore. So we've got to look back in the text. What has the author of Hebrews been telling us up until this point? Well, up until this point, the book of Hebrews is about this idea of faith. Do we have faith? Or are we running a race with faith? He's going to teach us now how to run that race of faith. 
But he says, therefore, since we have surrounded in this coliseum of other uh, athletes, if you will, those who have come before us, a great cloud of witnesses, he says. And so often uh, people have taught this passage and butchered the passage. That great cloud of witnesses is not in the stands looking at us as to cheer us on in the race. What the author is saying, hey, you on the race, look into the the, the crowd to see the witnesses that came before you to see how they ran the race that was set before them. Right? And he says, therefore, the therefore chapter 11 is what we would say is the Hall of Fame chapter of the Bible. The heroes of our faith. And he's saying, see, the heroes of our faith are surrounding you as you begin this journey, you begin this race that Christ set before you. And so let's look to them in the crowd. How did they run the race? So therefore, how did they run the race? And he goes through chapter 11, teaches us how every man in chapter 11 ran the race of faith. He, He starts, he says, By faith, who? Abel. Abel had this faith that he was going to offer God a sacrifice and God would be pleasing of that sacrifice. And he did that. And Cain killed him. And it says a little further along, by faith, Enoch. And then by faith, who? By faith, Noah. By faith, Noah. Remember, Noah Noah had never seen rain before. And yet God said, I've got a race that I'm going to set out before you, Noah, that you and only you can run. I need you to build an ark because my wrath is going to come against all of the people. And I'm going to take out all the people, but I'm going to save your family. And so by faith, Noah built an ark. That was Noah's race that was set before him. He goes on, by faith, Abraham obeyed and went to sacrifice his son Isaac. And on and on in chapter 11 it goes. All the way to the end. Where the writer of Hebrews says, I don't really have enough time to tell you all the heroes of the faith. But he then sums it up at the end. He says there's David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms and forced justice, obtained promises stop the mouths of lions quench the power of fire escape the edge of the sword were made strong out of weakness became mighty in war put foreign armies to flight women received back their dead by the resurrection some were tortured some refused to accept release so that they might rise again in a better life others suffered mocking and flogging even chains and imprisonments they were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about with, with skin with sheep, sheeps and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world is not worthy, wandering about in the desert. And so here's the writer, he's kind of setting the picture. You see all these cloud of witnesses, they ran the race that was set before him. And here's what we ought to understand, that your race, That God will see this. God has set your race. And my race and your race are going to be completely different. 
God hasn't called any two individuals ever on the planet to run the same race, to walk the same race. And so when we begin to ask the question, why me? We must ask the question, what is God wanting me to do in this race? Because he set the race before me. He knew that I was going to go through all this before the beginning of time. It tells us in the word. He set us on the race that he chose for us. And so, how are we to run this race? Four things the writer says that we must do. The first one is this. We must dispose of some things in our lives. But before that, I'd ask the question. I'd ask this question. Are you willing to run the race that God has set before you? Are you willing to run this race this year? We're going to get to the end of the passage where we see the prize of the the race. There is a goal. There is a prize awaiting for all of us as we run. As all of us finish, there will be a prize. But my great fear for us, church, is this. That we start off strong. And then something hits. And we just give up. You see, the word race in this passage has to do with this word. We get the word uh, um, agony from this word. The Greek word where we get our word agony is where the writer is saying this race, it's not going to be a pleasant race. It's not going to be an easy race. It's not even going to be a short race. It's going to be a long, agonizing, grueling race. Anyone say amen to that this morning? And so he's saying to us, hey, this race that I've set before you, it's, it's not unicorns and, and cupcakes, though that would be nice. He's saying it, it's going to come with a lot of pain. A lot of pain. Who's experienced pain this past year? Here's what we do know. And it's never going to make a Hallmark card. There's going to be pain next year. There's going to be unseen things that we come to next year that none of us today can even imagine. How do we know that? We look back at last year. Who set out at the beginning of 2017 and thought, this is going to be a year of pain? Amen. No. But has this not been a year of pain? A year of agony? A year of hurt? A year of disappointment? A year of you fill in the blank? So how are we to run this race that Christ Jesus has called us to? He says it this way. As we're being surrounded even this morning by this great cloud of witnesses, all the heroes of our faith, not just from the Bible, but as we look back in church history, there's many, many heroes of the faith that are looking on us this morning that we must look back to. Say, how did they do it? And how did Hudson Taylor go to China and not see one convert for years and years and years and years, and yet he served Christ faithful? How did the man do it? How how did these people run the race? It's answered at the very last verse in verse 3. But the first thing we do as we run this race is what he says is, let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings 
so closely to us. Through two things we must dispose of this morning. The first one is weight. Some of your Bibles may say hindrances. So the first thing that we do when we begin this race is that we got to rid ourselves or lay these things aside. We must lay these weights aside in our lives. You see, a suit and wearing a suit looks really good on a Sunday morning. But it looks terrible at the starting line of the Olympics in uh, swimming. If I were to get up on that block, I was almost going to get on that table. That would have been a bad idea. Get up on that block with a suit on. Everyone would be like, what is that crazy man doing? What, what do those swimmers wear? They wear almost nothing. So a suit looks really well here in this platform. But in the Olympics, in the 100-meter breaststroke, it would look ridiculous. And so what, Paul, what the writer of Hebrews is saying, first and foremost, hey, all these hindrances, they're not always bad things. Like, he's not talking about bad things. He's going to get to that in the next word, the next thing that we must dispose of. So what is the writer of Hebrews saying here? What are the hindrances in our lives that we've got to get rid of? Because they're not always bad things. What the writer of Hebrews is talking, who he's talking to is the Jewish believer. The Jewish believer knew the law. And what he's saying to the Jewish believer is, hey, the law, though it's a great thing, has become a hindrance to you. Is that not true, what the law did to the Jewish people? Is that not what the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees were doing? They were taking the law that was from God and made it a hindrance to God's people. And because of that hindrance, they weren't able to fulfill what God had called them to in the law of God, which was to glorify him. It became glorifying the commandments or glorifying the laws or glorifying you fill in the blank. What does that mean for us, Pal's chapter? I would say this. There's some weighty things here at our church that are weighing us down. We'll call them this, traditions. Uh, the crickets are chirping. You see, my fear for us is that we're looking to our tradition rather than looking to glorifying God, and our tradition will hold us back from run, running the race and therefore hold other people back from running the race. You see, tradition in and of itself, they're great things. I have traditions in my house. There's certain things we do around certain times. You see, on Monday, we celebrated Christmas. One of our traditions is that we always bake a cake for Jesus. That's a great tradition. But if that tradition becomes more about baking a cake and blowing out a candle, then I want to scrap the cake. And so we, church, Pals Chapel, what are the hindrances in us here the church that's holding us back from reaching our community? We must evaluate everything that we do to see if it's God-glorifying or if it's a hindrance. Th that goes from the preaching, that goes to the music, that goes through the committees, that goes through our polity, how we run the church. I mean, are we willing to look at everything that we do to say, is it a hindrance or is it God-glorifying? You see, because the church did that 100 years ago. 
house chapel sat down and they had convictions about reaching this community that weren't based on traditions. It was based on broken hearts for a broken community. And my great fear is those traditions are now holding us back from having a broken heart for our community. Like if it takes us to, to have a huge band up here to bring in people, we've got to bring in a band. If it takes me not wearing a suit and tie, I better not wear a suit and tie. I'm asking myself that question this year. God, what are the hindrances in my life that are preventing the gospel from going out of my soul? But God, what are we as a church doing? What are the hindrances that we're causing this community not to be reached with the gospel? And therefore, what does he say? As we, the church, continue to run the race, let us lay aside every hindrance they're not bad tradition is not a bad thing they become bad things when they don't allow us to fulfill the mission of god and the mission of god is for broken people to be reconciled back to himself and so if this place is not inviting to the unbelieving world then is it a hindrance of us or is it the outside world we've got to ask the question and if we were to say as a church, man, there are some things that we've held on to for a long time that have now become hindrances to the gospel. And all of us this morning would say, yeah, man, if we're honest with ourselves, we have hindrances. How do I know that? Look around. Look, look around. Part of the empty pew is on us, church. Part of it's on us. And so we can keep looking outside of this place and point the finger, well, they're just heathens. They just hate the Lord. They just, well, okay, great. Well, what are we doing to say, hey, we've got a loving God that wants to be in a loving relationship with you. That's on us. That's not on them. And are we willing to lay aside every hindrance? But it has to start with you first, me first. Are there hindrances in my life that prevent me from sharing the gospel? Because if they prevent me from sharing the gospel personally, it will prevent us collectively. Because I'm part of the church. And you're part of the church. So we're called to run the race first with ourselves. There are any hindrances in our lives that we must dispose of. That's the first thing. The second thing he says we must dispose of is what? He says lay aside every hindrance, every weight, and sin. Oh man, you didn't have to go there. So now he's saying, hey, now there's some things in your life that are contrary to the will of God. That's called sin. Sin is missing the mark. The mark is holiness. The right mark is righteousness. Sin is missing the mark that God's called you to. And if you're a believer here this morning, if you have ongoing sin in your life, you are continually to miss the mark. Therefore, you cannot run this race. What does it say? If you do not lay aside the hindrances and the sins, it what entangles you. Have you ever seen a runner tie his two shoestrings together and try to run? It looks ridiculous. They get up out the starting block and they fall flat on their face. 
And we have so many believers that run this race with their shoes tied together and they just fumble all down the runway. And what the, the writer of Hebrews is saying to us is, lay aside your sin. But here's what this word sin means in this text. You see, we can come to this passage and say, ah, oh, sin, the universal sin. But what this writer is saying is, no, there's certain sins in every one of us that we're prone to. Am I right? Like, you ought to know the sin that you are prone to. There are certain sins that, man, I'm tempted by, but I'm not prone to go that way. There are certain sins in my life, man, without a doubt, I'm going to go right there every time. Like, like for me, lust is one of those sins. I, I've got to be real careful with that sin. Because Satan knows, man, if I get him there, I, I got him in the weeds. If I get him in the weeds, I'm going to kill him. But, but one of the sins that doesn't entangle me is hoarding. Like, I'm not a hoarder. I, I'm a generous person. So I, like when Satan tempts me with holding on things, I'm like, man. So he's like, okay, I can't get him there, but I know where to get him. Like, Satan knows you better than you. Satan knows where you're prone to sin. Do you know where you're prone to sin? That's what this passage is saying. He's saying, now lay off these hindrances that weigh you down, but you better attack that sin in your life that weighs you down, that one, two, three sins that really weigh you down. Not the universal, like, yes, yeah, sin, but, man, that sin. Anyone relate? Or I'm, like, the only one preaching. And so he says, lay that aside. Lay that particular sins or sins aside that you're prone to. And thou, he says, hey, when you've laid the hindrances aside, when you've laid the sin aside, what does it say? Then it says this. When you've done all that, and now let us run the race. You see that? He doesn't tell us to run the race first. He tells us, hey, rid yourselves of this thing so that when you begin to run, you can run freely. My great fear for us is this, that we don't do the first part. We don't do repentance at all. And because we don't do repentance, we run this race and fumble and fumble and bumble and stumble all the way through. Now, I'm not saying that we're not going to have sin. I'm not saying you're going to be perfect. But I'm saying, does it start with you in the morning, every day, repenting of your sin? Is that where we start the race? Because when I go to bed tonight, the race is going to be over for today, and I'm going to get up and run the race again. It's going to be this ongoing race where I get about an eight-hour reprieve at night. Do I start my day with repentance before I run the race? Or do I wake up carrying the baggage from yesterday? Carry the baggage of shame and guilt and fear of being exposed from yesterday. How many have done that before? And yet, what the writer is saying is, hey, when you start the race, this daily race, rid yourselves of these things. So that when you run this race, because today is going to be hard. That's what the word means. Remember that. The word race means agony. You're going to get up, and you're going to face a day that's going to be full of agony. Now, a day in and of itself that's full of agony is a hard enough day already, right? But if I put on things I do not need to be put on and try to run the race, how much harder does it become? 
anyone, like, warm-ups are great at the beginning of a basketball game. But I don't know if you've ever tried to play basketball in warm-ups. It doesn't go so well. Like, I had to rip those things off, lay them aside, and check into the game. That's what the writer's saying. And then he says this, this race that's been what? Set before you. Who set it before you? You didn't, I didn't. Jeremiah 29, 11 says this, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. I'm the one that set up your future. I'm the one that put it into motion. So when you get up and you go through your day, be reminded that this day has been set out before you from the beginning of time by the creation of the world. He knew and knows what you're going through today. There's no surprises with God, though there's so many surprises with us. God never sits in the throne room and says, oh my, how did that happen? Man, that little coffee break sure did cost me on that one. No, God is always overseeing his children and always setting the race out before us and knows how it's going to end before we ever know how it ends, before we even begin the race, because he set it out before us. There's nothing in God's timing that has ever caught him by surprise. Amen? Thank God for that. He says, and then how are we to run this race? With endurance. That, that word endurance is a beautiful word. It means keep going even when you want to give up. And here's my great fear for us, church. As we start off like Usain Bolt. And we start off out of the gate and man, we're going and we're going. That first hundred meters, man, it looks like we're like gazelles in, in the Sahara. But if you take Usain Bolt and you put him on a, a, a marathon, he's not going to do very well. But if you take a Kenyan runner and put him in a 100-meter race, he's not going to do very well. But what the writer is saying to us is this is a long race, and so we must race it with endurance. Never give up. This is what Jesus tells us in uh, Luke chapter 14. Let's turn there this morning. Luke chapter 14. This is how Jesus says it to the great crowd that accompanied him, that began to follow him. He says, if anyone wants to come to me and does not hate his own father and his own mother and his own wife and his children and his brothers and his sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What, man, you're talking crazy now, Jesus. What, what did he mean by all that? You've got to hate all these things in comparison to how we love him, is what he's saying. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And this is what he says, verse 28. For which of you desires to build a tower and does not first sit down and what? Count the cost. You see, coming to Christ is going to cost you something. He just told us what it's going to cost us going to cost us our life and my great fear for us is we the believer have come down and walked an aisle without ever counting the cost and so we're like flashes in a pan because we haven't really been taught no one's really told us no one's discipled us hey this 
thing called following Christ is the most difficult thing you've never done, ever. Not that you have done, you've never done it before. And it's going to be grueling and painful and you're not going to like it. How come? Because we've heard preachers say, hey, come to Jesus and your life gets better. Well, my life hadn't got a whole lot better since coming to Jesus. I'm just being honest. But we have preachers say that. Hey, come to Jesus and you'll be rich. If you're not rich, it's because something's going wrong in you. It's called the prosperity gospel. That's not the gospel of the New Testament. The gospel of the New Testament says it's going to be agonizing. It's going to be painful. It's going to cost you something. What it's going to cost you is your very life. And so if you want to run this race, know that it's a great sacrifice to run the race that God set before you. It's going to cost you everything. And when you come to the end, there's going to be moments in this race that you want to give up. Anyone ever been there before? Like, man, I'm just kind of done with this whole following Jesus thing. I guess I'm the only one again. Lonely up here today. Right? And then the author says this. Run that race with endurance. Like there's going to be moments along this life that you want to give up. But keep going. Keep going. How do we keep going? Because we look back into the stands to see those who went before us that kept going. The ones that were sawed in two. The ones that were thrown into a lion's den. The ones that were thrown into a furnace. The ones that got mocked. The ones that got, you name it. That's why we look at the witnesses before us and say, this is how they do it. So there's an opportunity. Therefore, I can do it. There's people that have gone before me that have done the race. And man, you look at those brothers and those sisters in the Old Testament and from church history, they have run a tougher race than we have ever thought or imagined or dreamed of. I mean, Paul, you get to the end of Paul's life, and he kind of retells his life. He's like, man, that dude stuck his hand and got bit by a snake, almost died, then was shipwrecked, then was shipwrecked again, beaten a few times. Like, that never happened to me. But I can look and see Paul in the stands. Okay. I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one that's had this tough race set before him. And then the writer says this. Once you dispose of these things, once you've run this race, once you've looked into the crowds, don't forget one other person. That's what he says, right? He says, now this. That race set before you. Now verse 2. Looking to what? Jesus. The founder and the the what? Perfecter of our faith. So as we're going through this long, agonizing, painful journey, this painful race, let us look forward to Jesus. You, You see, anyone remember the Olympics, when Usain Bolt blew out the world record. Anyone remember that? You remember, man, he was gliding. He would have killed the record even more. But what did he do the last five steps? He looked behind him, and it slowed him down significantly. And I think what Satan does to us is he puts all these obstacles in our lives, all these things to take our eyes and our, what, our focus off of who? The one that we are to look to, Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. So therefore, we look at the obstacles. 
you're not going to be a good runner if you keep looking down. You're not going to be a good runner if you keep looking back. What the writer is saying is, you look forward and you keep looking at Jesus, the, what, the founder of your faith. Man, I could teach all day on that one word. That one word means the pioneer of your faith. That, that means the author of your faith. So if you thought you ever came up with this faith thing on your own, you're sadly mistaken. The one Jesus that you look to, he's the one that set it all in motion for you. He's the founder of it. You did not choose Christ. Christ chose you. You did not come up with this faith thing. He did. And he's the one that then implanted it in you. So we look to him. If I look at my own faith, oh man, it is a disaster. If I think, man, see, I did this. I'm the one that walked an aisle. I'm the one that prayed a prayer. I'm the one, I'm the one, I'm the one. Well, man, I'm going to fumble and stumble all over the place. But I look to Jesus, the one that set it in motion, and look to him as what? The founder of it? But to catch the next word, the perfecter of it. You know what that word means? The one that's accomplished all of it. The one that he not only started it, but he's also finished it. You see that in this passage? He's already at the finish line. He already knows how it's going to end. He already knows the pain you're going through. He already knows the pain you will go through. And he's waiting and waiting. He's saying, just look at me. Just look at me. Just look at me. Just look at me. Anyone remember when their kids were learning to walk? Oh, man, it's such a beautiful, clumsy sight. Well, what happened with kids? It's when they start looking at their own feet, their big dome heads make them fall over. Like, I don't know why God did that, but that thing is like this big and their little legs are this big. Like, geometry says big head, small legs mean fall over. Like, so that head starts going forward when they look down at their own feet. They what? They fumble over. But if that big dome of theirs keeps looking at mommy and daddy, they kind of wobble to you. They got to keep their eyes on what? Mom and dad. How much more true for us, the believer, the author, and the perfecter of our faith? It's with great assurance and great confidence and great gladness that I read this passage. He's the one that set it all in motion. Oh, man. There's rest in that for me. Though it's a tough race, there's still rest in knowing, oh, my Jesus, my Jesus, the author and perfecter of this mess. So I focus on him. And what am I focusing on him? He, for the joy that was set before him, what? Endured the cross. You look to Jesus. There's no man to ever walk this planet that has had a more agonizing life than Jesus himself. Like, he did not deserve the death he died. He didn't deserve that. He didn't deserve the life he lived. He, he didn't deserve any of that. He was a righteous, holy man with no sin. He didn't deserve the cross. You and I deserve the cross. And yet he walked this planet with great agony to get to the cross 
the joy that was set before him. You see that in the passage? Joy was set before him. I taught him this last week. So we looked at Jesus. Okay, Jesus did it. And Jesus went through it all. It tells us that again in Hebrews. We have a great high priest that can sympathize with everything that we've ever gone through because he himself has gone through it. So we looked at him. With joy, he ran the race. Oh, man. I don't know about you. But if someone told me 40 years ago, hey, this is the race you're going to have, I don't think these last 40 years would have any joy in them. And I don't think if someone told me these next 40 years, if I get to live that much longer, all the pain, I'm, I'm doubtful I'm going to have a lot of joy. But I look to Jesus. Okay, if he did it, he's called me to do it, and he's what? He's the author and the perfecter of it. Therefore, I may not be able to do it, but I rest in him who has already done it. So I rest in Jesus, the one who has all the joy, to give me the joy that I cannot find in myself because, man, he has done it, and he's doing it for me today. And so we fix our eyes on Jesus. I'd ask us this morning, where are our eyes fixed this morning? Are our eyes fixed on our circumstances? Are our eyes fixed on our bank accounts? Are our eyes fixed on you fill in the blank? If your eyes are fixed on anything but Jesus, you will stumble. And you will fall every time, without a doubt. But if we look to Jesus, we, will, we may stumble and we may fall, but we won't be defeated. Amen? He says to remember what Christ endured. Then he says this. The last point is this. We focus on Jesus, and now we consider what do we consider? Verse 3. Consider him who, Jesus, who endured from sinners. I remember that day in the garden, that night in the garden. He wanted to give up. You remember that? We wouldn't say it that way, but that's what he says. He said, take this cup from me. I, I'm kind of done, God. Take this cup from me. He's kind of at that point of, He'd been exhausted emotionally and spiritually and mentally. And he asked God the Father, hey, take this cup from me. I can't do it any longer. But then he says this, his eyes were what? Focused on God's will, he says. And so his eyes, his focus was on the will of God. And he says, but not my will, your will be done. So we consider that, brothers and sisters. He says, consider all that he endured, such hostility against him so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. You see, as I was studying this passage this week, I began to consider all that Christ has gone through for me. I think there's something I often miss when I consider the cross of Jesus. I consider the pain. I consider the torture. I consider the betrayal from his people. I, I consider the betrayal of his best friends. I, can, I, I get all that. But the place I often miss is this one place that none of us have ever experienced. at that moment of being forsaken by God. Do you remember that in the passage? He was forsaken by God because he took on your sin and my sin on the cross. And God the Father could not look at him any longer. 
because of our sin. I forget that part of the cross. Like that was a moment in time that Jesus had never experienced and will never experience again. Being forsaken by God. You and I have never experienced that. Believer or unbeliever, God's favor always rests on his people. How do I know that? You woke up this morning. And yeah, I forget that one moment when all the sins of the world rested on Jesus' shoulders in the agony that he had to go through. That spiritual agony. That loneliness that he felt being forsaken by God. Oh God, oh God, why have you forsaken me, he says. Because God cannot look at sin. He cannot be with sin. And so in that moment, he turned from Jesus. And that wrath of God was put on him in that moment. And when that moment happened, the moment of the cross took place. The moment that wrath in that moment was satisfied because Jesus took it all on him. And God turned from him in that moment. And then God saw his righteousness was imputed in Jesus. Therefore, it's imputed in us. Therefore, then he went back into what we call reconciliation. That was the moment of the sacrifice when God could no longer look at his son. And yet, I don't often consider that. I consider all the rest, that one moment on the cross, that Jesus is all alone. I often forget. And what does it say? Consider that. It means to calculate. It means to ponder. It means to sit with. Do we consider that? All that he endured. So that what? When we grow, we will not grow weary and faint-hearted. I'd ask us this, this church this morning as a way of application. Jared comes up. I'd ask us this question. Are you worry, weary this morning? Are you faint-hearted this morning? Take an honest look at your soul this morning. Are we weary and are we faint-hearted? I know many of us would say yes this morning. But I ask us this. Let us consider the cross this morning. Let us be reminded what Christ has done for us this morning. Let us be reminded that maybe some of your hindrances or some of your heavy heartedness is because of your hindrances and because of your sin. Confess that to God. That can be very exhausting. Carrying around secret sin is exhausting. Do we have a heavy heart this morning for our loved ones, for our friends? Are we faint-hearted in that? Are we weary and we faint-hearted because of our circumstances this morning? And this isn't how I'd play it out. This is not how I imagined 2017 ending. 
So we worry and think harder about that. But as a way of application, let us fix our eyes on Him. And we ought not to grow weary and think harder. that's you this morning, weary and faint-hearted, I pray that you wouldn't leave this place without sharing that with someone else. Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, we're to carry one another's burdens. That's sin, that's heavy-heartedness, that's faint-heartedness, that's our hindrances, that's what the passage says in Galatians 6, 1 through 5. It says, let us confess that to one another and let those who are spiritual carry the weight of other people. Maybe that's just you this morning. You need someone else to carry some of it with you. We're never meant to do this journey with Christ alone. We're meant to have the church to carry our burdens. Jesus, I pray for us here at Powell's Chapel. Oh my, it's been a long year. A year that I'll look back on and think, man, wow can't believe all the things that happened. God, we had a lot of illnesses this year, a lot of cancer, a lot of pain this year. We've had deaths this year, God, of some of our most godly saints. God, we look around and we've lost people, we've lost members, God, and heavy-hearted, faint-hearted, weary, God. But I pray this morning, I pray for us that we would fix our eyes on you, Jesus. And so, God, you know this pain, Jesus, you know this pain of loss, of losing people, of being betrayed. and You know it all. And yet somehow in it all, you found joy. And pray that for us. God, I don't pray for an easy 2018. I do pray for a joyful one. And I don't know what it will cost us to have a joyful year. But I know it's going to cost us something. But I pray at this time next year, we would all in this room look back. The pain of it all, through the agony of it all, and we would each say, I, I experienced joy. And I believe that joy comes through glorifying you, Lord Jesus. I pray that for us. I pray we would glorify you in all that we do, in all that we say. God, this morning, let us lay down these hindrances 
Let's confess of our sin and then run the race with endurance that you set before us.